tonight we have Sister Mary Madeline Todd, OP, presenting on being entrusted with a feminine genius. And a little bit about Sister you should know. She wrote her doctoral dissertation on the thought of John Paul II on woman. Yes. Oh, yes. She defended it in the very room that John Paul II defended his dissertation. Yes. Sister was called to live in Rome, and while she was there, she was present for both his beatification and his canonization. This is a daughter of Pope John Paul II and beloved. She is Mary Madeline for uh, Magdalene, for St. Mary Magdalene, which happens to be her mentoring group. And so, uh, Sister, we're very grateful for the heart that you poured into it. Any time that you spend with Sister, it's like, you know, joy is a fruit of the spirit. It's like pure joy, and it's not just because she's, she absolutely loves teenagers, uh, but it's just an overflowing from her maternity, pure joy. Thank you, Sister. Wow, good evening. And um, many speakers have already said this, but I have to echo it. It is absolutely extraordinary to look out at all of you, um, and it brings me great joy. I also serve on the board of directors for the Given Institute, an amazing team. And we've all been sharing that this event far exceeds every dream and hope we had. You know, you know, when someone's waiting for a child, they plan, they build, you know, design the nursery, they try to do everything to prepare. Well, we've been birthing <laughs> this, this um, event and had no idea how magnificent it would be. And um, I think I speak for John Paul II that <laughs> you are a gift, your, your very being here, your presence, each and every one of you. So um, thank you for letting me address you. And it's interesting, when I was drafting this, I was like, why is the Trinity so much in my thought? I didn't realize we would be having this talk on the vigil of the, or the actual feast of the, the Blessed Trinity. So let's begin with a prayer, placing ourselves in the presence of the Trinity. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise. The very gift of who we are is yours. You love us, and you bless every step of our journey, and you long for us to be at home in you and with you. Jesus Christ, Son and Redeemer, you are the face of the Father's love for us. Please be with us and in us. Please renew us and heal us and restore us. Holy Spirit, breathe over our minds and hearts. Just clear out a space free of distraction so that we can hear the truth and that we can be filled with joy and love. And Mary, our mother, we dedicate this talk in a special way to your maternal care. You who are the very embodiment of the feminine genius. Pray for us. Pray for every woman here, every man here. Pray that our culture will be renewed 
so that we can become the women and men we are called to be by God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's one of the best-kept secrets that the church, in its teaching on women, has one of the most broad-minded, most radically freeing and beautiful messages to bring to the world. I've been very blessed to be called to many different parts of the world and to speak about what the church says about women, and I've been astonished by how many people don't know the great gift that there is in the teaching of John Paul II. And I'm going to recommend to you, if you haven't already read, the most important trilogy outside of Scripture. It's not Lord of the Rings, I'm sorry to say. I'm a huge Tolkien fan. But for women, it would be the trilogy of Molieris Dignitatem on the dignity and vocation of woman, the letter to women, and Redemptoris Mater, on the mother of the redeemer. If we really want to embark on a journey of understanding our femininity, these are really key documents for us. And they're not easy reads, they're profound reads. So if you do them slowly and with other women, I think you'll find great anointing in them. Actually, I was very surprised that when I lived in Australia and New Zealand, I was giving talks on the dignity of women, and one evening I was speaking in a pub, you know, Theology on Tap, and more men turned up than women. And I looked out in the audience and I said, don't you know there's a talk on the masculine genius at like the other pub down the street? And they said, yeah. And I said, why are you all here? And they said, if you can help us understand women, we would be so grateful. <laughs> and, and I looked at them and I said, women don't even understand ourselves, so give up, guys. <laughs> anyway, and they knew that I was going to be in it for an adventure that evening. But there are things we can know about ourselves. And there are beautiful, beautiful truths and insights that come to us, especially in the writings of our Holy Father. So we all know that there are many competing visions of the human person and of woman. And it matters deeply which voices we listen to. It matters profoundly which voices we listen to. When we look in the mirror, who do we see looking back out at us? What do we see? You know, very often, it's just kind of, I think it's part of the fallenness of our human nature. We, we see and we are dissatisfied with ourselves. This is a sign of the fallenness, men and women. You know, we see what we lack, we see where we fail. But Jesus said that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So if we were actually walking in the truth of how God sees us, we actually would experience a profound freedom. And with freedom comes so much joy and so much peace. So wherever we're not experiencing that freedom, somehow we haven't heard the truth. And here on this amazing Feast of Trinity Sunday, there is a truth revealed in Christ and pondered constantly by John Paul that deeply informed his theology of woman. And we've heard it in many ways in the beautiful talks we've been having throughout this conference. But I just pray you'll hear it and hear it. You know, there's that wonderful encounter where Jesus said to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And sometimes in our prayer, I hope we answer to Jesus, who do you say he is? But I always say to people, flip the question around and look at the Lord and say, who do you say that I am? When you hear those voices that are your version of who you are, we, we always see our failures, don't we? What is it with that? You know, I tell people, the first year I taught, I taught 180 students. 
a day. <laughs> and I had six sections, 30 in each. And it was time for parent-teacher conferences, and I was a brand new teacher, so I didn't know what I was doing, but I was trying to be pleasant and, and um, say nice things about their kids um, and trying to remember all 180. <laughs> anyway, and 178 parents came in and said, oh my gosh, my kids love your class. They're, they're enjoying it. They're learning all about their faith. Now, if you can do math quickly, even having just had dinner, okay, 180 and 178 came in very delighted. Two came in with great unhappiness, angst, unrest about rules of the school that weren't even under my control. Okay, and they yelled at me and they created a great scene and God gave me a profound grace to remain very calm under pressure. You know, I just said, I'll look into that, we'll, you know, and I did. Um, but what's interesting is you already know before I, I say it, when I went home that night, what was I thinking about? The two, okay, because guess what, we've all been there. You know, we ace a paper, but we think of the one thing we got marked off on. <laughs> we compete in a sporting event, and we think the one thing you didn't get right. What about us does that? Well, our fallenness. But that's our version of ourselves. And sometimes we let other people tell us what they think of us. Sometimes we let the media tell us what they think of us. But if you want to know the truth that will set you free, you have to let the Lord tell you who you are. And who does the Lord tell us we are? You know, every woman began her life as a little girl, and regardless of what our human experiences were, we had a dream of the perfect father. You know, John Paul's most great, beautiful play, The Radiation of Fatherhood, is about a girl who longs for her, the perfect father. Okay? It's one of my favorite plays in the world. Someday, I'm going to write a screenplay and convince someone to make a film out of it. <laughs> um, like the jewelry shop was filmed. Um, but this is my dream. Um, my action plan. There we go. Um, so, but it's... Um, it's this amazing play about this girl dreaming of her dad. Um, and and I, I feel impelled to say to people, you have the father of your dreams. You are the beloved daughter. That's the first relationship that affects every single woman. You are the beloved daughter of a very good father who loves you unconditionally. I know you've heard all this before, but do you believe it? Do you believe that you have a good father who wants such beautiful things for your life? And if things have happened that are hard and painful and you think, how could a good father have allowed that? He will bring good out of them, I promise. We've heard very courageous speakers who've shared some of the great crosses and the challenges of their road with us. I mean, I can't imagine some of them without their crosses, right? I mean, look at Our Lady. Would she have been who she was without the crosses? God doesn't block the events of our life, but he transforms everything that occurs by the power of merciful love. You know? I mean, when John Paul wrote his encyclical on the Father, it was rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. Merciful love is a love so strong that it can transform even the greatest darkness into goodness and beauty and light and truth and grace. And that's the father you have. You don't have to wish for him. You have him. And if you have been blessed to have also a human father who showed you that face, 
of the Father who loves you and wants your good, you're going to be called <laughs> in a special way to share that love with others. And we have to do everything we can to support men to be that kind of father. But I promise you, you've got it, no matter what your human experience has been. We are the beloved sisters, friends, and brides of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, even though every soul is spousally related to, the, to God, women get to show forth the fullness of that. Women get to show men what a bridal response of openness to God means. Okay? Adam looks at Eve while Eve's looking at God. And from her, he learns something of what it is to open himself completely to God. God Adam felt alone. But Eve had to show him something about what inhabited solitude is like what it is. And, and this is a beautiful call. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. And as temples of the Holy Spirit, we're called to a really complete, total, loving union with our God, so profound that it is life-giving for the whole world. That was not just Our Lady's call. That is every one of our calls. <laughs> okay? So we are called to let the, the, the Holy Spirit dwell within us and fructify, um, fertilize, make fertile our whole way of being so that we are life-giving. So long before anything we do, even before your action plan, even before you started doing impressive things, giving great talks, leading the world into all kinds of wonders, who you are is defined by whose you are. And whose you are should be the total foundation of your confidence and your strength. You are the beloved daughters of a good father, the beloved sisters, friends, and brides of the Son, the temples of the Spirit. And this is the basis of walking in the freedom of the children of God that we were meant to walk in. This revelation of truth that's entrusted to us in Christ was absolutely central to the thought of John Paul II. And we are so blessed tonight to be in his shrine. His relic is housed here, and I know he is interceding for us right now from the Father's house. You know, he, he is looking on the face of our God, and he is asking the Lord to bless us in this very special place. And he's doing that with this tender paternity. You have more than one father who loves you, actually. You have lots of spiritual dads. If you haven't gotten to know the communion of saints, you need to. <laughs> John Paul II loved to canonize people, okay? Um, and, uh, and I think he wanted to remind us, we've got... We've got a team who are looking on the face of God, and they are pulling for us. And every one of our mentoring groups has these amazing patron saints who want us to come to where they are, to the house of the Father. So we have every reason to hope. Now, how is our journey as women kind of specific in this journey to the Father's house? Well, I think John Paul was able to reflect on this so deeply because he had such a profound love and respect for women. John Paul saw in his own lived experience what a mother's sacrificial love looks like. If you've never met Amelia Wojtyła, you should. You know, here in the display, in various places, there's this lovely photo of her with him when he was a little baby. And uh, when I was studying his thought, I got to go to Poland, and I remember looking at it in the, in the house that was his parents' home, is a museum to his life. And I felt like she was right there 
trying to speak something to me. And I was like, Amelia, I'm, I think I'm supposed to know you. I think there's something you've got to show me. And I found this book that was only in Italian, and happy I could read it a bit. And, and it was called The Two Mothers of John Paul II. And I didn't realize that after Amelia had her first two children, her doctor said to her, you really have too fragile of health to have more children. She had very bad kidneys and heart. And the, the pregnancy put a lot of pressure on her kidneys. And they said, really, you, you shouldn't have any more children. But she and her husband prayed and trusted and she conceived little Carol. <laughs> and having Carol did in fact impair her health so much that for the, for the rest of his childhood, she, she could not do many things. In fact, if you look at his elementary school records, he missed a lot of days of elementary school because his dad was a military officer and so he went home to take care of the things in his home so that it, to help his mom. Um, it clearly didn't hurt his intellectual development, actually. <laughs> um, but there we go. I shouldn't say that because I'm a teacher. <laughs> um, but, Anyway, but he, it's, so he saw in his li lived experience that the woman who was primary to his youth actually gave her life for him. She died when he was eight years old. And actually, that led him to his understanding of what spiritual maternity is. Because when his mom died, his dad, a man of profound prayer and faith, took him to this beautiful monastery, Calvaria, um, between Varevice and Krakow, and there in front of an image of Our Lady, said to him, she's your mother now. This is your mother now. So little Carol <laughs> understood the self-sacrificing love of woman. He, he loved women <laughs> in the most beautiful, deep, and profound sense. And I think that's why he has given the church such profound gifts of his meditations. Well, of course, we know he doesn't love just woman. He loves the human person. He spent so many years meditating on, writing about, preaching about the beauty of the human person, loved and willed by God, loved male and female. And he marveled at the radiance of fatherhood and motherhood in all their expressions. He had such a broad mind and heart. Already by his life's experience, he understood that motherhood had many dimensions. And in a world that often tells us, live for you, fulfill yourself, he dared to say that we will only find ourselves by making a sincere gift of ourselves for others. But that's what he saw in Amelia, his mom. And this author of the book I mentioned says, when he canonized St. Gianna, that beautiful Italian physician, he was canonizing his own mother's sacrifice. Because he, in, in Gianna, he gave the world the model of a mother who lays down her life that her child may live. Okay. So this, this appreciation of woman is right at the heart of John Paul's writing and thinking. And it's at the heart of the gospel. It's at the heart of divine revelation. And when he meditated on the gift of woman, he said that, of course, the human person is entrusted to men and women. The human person comes into this world through men and women and their mutual self-giving, okay? But he did say that for woman, the human person is entrusted to us in an exceptional way. This is important. This entrustment of the human person is written into our femininity. Whether or not we actually give birth to a child, the capacity to welcome the gift of the other as mothers shapes our very identity, our very way of thinking and being. Because this choice to receive and give love 
is deeply linked to the choice to welcome the gift of every person. Now, when he's writing about woman in Moris Dignitatem, John Paul does what he typically does. He looks to the beginning and Genesis and our mother Eve, and he looks to the end of Revelation. He looks to the book of Revelation where you see the great final struggle. And he says something very profound. He says, woman is at the very center of the dramatic struggle for the human person. And this is a struggle against evil and against the anti-personal forces of death. And this is the direct quote from Mulerius Dignitatem 30. The struggle with evil and the evil one marks the biblical exemplar of the woman from the beginning to the end of history. It is a struggle for man, for his true good, for his salvation. And it is precisely in the woman, Eve Mary, that history witnesses a dramatic struggle for every human being, the struggle for his or her fundamental yes or no to God and for God's eternal plan for humanity. That's profound. He's saying that woman is right at the heart of the struggle for all of humanity. And he reads in this that that's because it is, and this is the this is obviously true, but it's so profound to reflect on, that it is a woman's freely given, full, personal yes to God's will that is the necessary acceptance at the beginning of every human life. We know this. And we shouldn't be surprised that that is under attack in the spiritual battle. I mean, if you think about the most life-giving elements of things in this world, the spousal self-gift of man and woman, the yes to life that welcomes the new person into this world, the sacramental moment in which the priest says, this is my body given up for you, and in which he says, your sins are forgiven. These life-giving moments, do we have any question that marriage and woman and the priesthood will be under attack? <laughs> and woman is right at the heart, with man, but right at the heart of this struggle for the very destiny of humanity. And so the human person is entrusted to woman in a special way, John Paul says. Although the person is entrusted to both man and woman, woman has this, like her very yes is the beginning of human life. So he says in Mulleris Dignitatem 30 again, the moral and spiritual strength of a woman is joined to her awareness that God entrusts the human being to her in a special way. Now this concept of the strength of woman, I think is very interesting because I give a lot of talks to a lot of women of a lot of different ages. <laughs> and one of the things I've kind of discerned in recent years is that we have some misperceptions about what is a strong woman, okay? Because a strong woman is so appealing. When I think of someone like Mother Teresa of Calcutta, <laughs> when I think of someone um, like Edith Stein, okay? A strong woman, is a woman of virtue. And one thing I think that we, my sisters in Christ, have to think about, about as being women who are strong is the difference between real strength and pseudo-strength. The real strength of virtue and the false strength that says to us, your strength is in being completely independent. That is not a biblical concept. Because we come into this world dependent. We depend on a creator. We depend on our redeemer. We depend on the sanctifier. 
and we depend on one another in the human community, and we depend, interdepend, with our brothers in Christ. And I think when we look at what real feminine strength is, there was for too long a movement to promote women by putting men down, to promote women by turning them against their capacity to say yes to life. And nothing about that is biblical. Nothing about that is in the thought of the church. What is a strong woman? The woman who can build up those around her. The woman who knows her own strengths and weaknesses, her own dependencies and her own courage, and can bring out the best in others who is not independent but interdependent, who is not tearing down and competing with men but helping to build them up and by being the woman she's made to be, a virtuous woman draws out the virtue in her brothers. This is, this is a strong woman. And this is the woman who understands that the entrustment of the human person to her is a battle that has to, that will remain, but that it will change with time. How is the battle to be fought? What is the battle attacking? And when John Paul wrote back in Morius Dignitatum, now this document is now more than 30 years past, okay? But what he said was, I think, very prophetic about how this entrustment of the human person to us kind of plays out. He said, for all the benefits, excuse me, in our own time, the successes of science and technology make it possible to attain a material well-being to a degree hitherto unknown. While this favors some, it pushes others to the edges of society. In this way, unilateral progress can also lead to a gradual loss of sensitivity for man, that is, for what is essentially human. In this sense, our time in particular awaits the manifestation of that genius which belongs to women and which can ensure sensitivity for human beings in every circumstance. This technological era we live in does create a kind of marginalization. And it can obscure. Technology can be a wonderful tool. There are many forms of technology that save lives. <laughs> there are many forms of technology that put us in communication with one another. Technology is not bad in itself. Of course not. Okay? But we have to be careful that the person whom the technology is supposed to serve is not lost in the process of the development. And he does see that because woman is literally the one who welcomes life into this world, to whom the human person has been entrusted, that she has a special role in preserving the focus on the human person in the midst of material progress. And, but it's interesting because I was so happy that one of the panelists happened to mention this, that it's not just by being a woman that we're gonna make this huge difference. It's not just that, okay, this half of the population is great at the person thing, this half is not, that, that, that's not true, okay? When, when the Second Vatican Council closed, and in their closing statement spoke about the changes in society that were making women more in the forefront, and it was quoted in the beginning of Molière's Dignitatum by John Paul II, they said, women imbued with the spirit of the gospel can do so much to aid humanity and not falling, okay? Women imbued with the spirit of the gospel, <laughs> not just because you're a woman, you're going to save the world. Okay? Both men and women are only going to shape a culture of life and a civilization of love if we are of the gospel. <laughs> so if, when we speak about those characteristics that are part of the feminine genius, they do depend on our being women who are walking in grace and who are letting ourselves be informed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, when I said that the message of the church is one of the most inclusive, expansive, liberating, freeing, in his letter to women, John Paul II expressed a kind of dream about women. He said, 
It is thus my hope, dear sisters, that you will reflect carefully on what it means to speak of the genius of women, not only in order to be able to see in this phrase a specific part of God's plan that needs to be accepted and appreciated, but also to, in order to let this genius be more fully expressed in the life of society as a whole, as well as in the life of the church. And he goes on to do almost a litany of thanksgiving to women. He goes through and thanks mothers. He thanks wives. He thanks daughters and sisters. He thanks the women who work and those who are in every area of social, economic, cultural, artistic, and political life. Um, and in, in this regard, the engagement in the world, he says that women in a special way help to establish economic and political structures that are ever more worthy of humanity. I mean, this is this entrustment of the human person to us is meant to, to inform the way we engage in the society. He also thinks consecrated women, and he says that we help to the church and all of humanity to experience the spousal relationship to God, one which magnificently expresses the fellowship which God wishes to establish with his creatures. So that, that as I was saying, woman manifests in a special way, the consecrated woman, to, to others what it is to live totally for God. And then he goes into a very broad, almost poetic, um, he's a poet, um, idea of thanking all women, you know. And in that statement where he's thanking all women, he says, through the insight which is so much part of your womanhood, you enrich the world's understanding and help to make human relations more honest and authentic. Honest and authentic. Think of everything that appears in the evening news, in the church and in the society. If women can help in bringing about a more honest and authentic communication in the world, we have a real place, a real role. Now he links this to the capacity in woman to be mothers. And he recognizes that motherhood, as I've already said, has both its rich, full, deep expression in the actual giving of new life to a child, as well as in the spiritual motherhood that involves every mother, every woman. And he notes certain characteristics that he associates with this maternal capacity in us. One of these is attentiveness. He says in Molieris Dignitatum 18 that because motherhood involves a special communion with the mystery of life, this unique contact with a person developing within woman gives rise to an attitude towards all human beings, not just her own child. And he says so that the woman has this capacity to attend to others. Now we've heard many speakers in this conference say how important this presence and attentiveness are. We live in a world where people feel very isolated and lost. And I mean, Mother Teresa used to say the great poverty of the West is not material. The great poverty of the West, she would say, is loneliness. And this attentiveness to the other is a gift John Paul sees as part of the feminine genius. Another he specifies is creativity. Now, this conference has convinced me that the creativity of woman is profound. I mean, hearing the different ways some our panelists, your action plans are at work, he says that motherhood, in its personal ethical sense, expresses this important creativity on the part of woman upon whom the very human, humanity of the new human being depends. 
I would say how desperately we need this creativity, how desperately we need people who can look at the situations of the world and not just critique everything negatively, but say, how can we collaborate? How can we work with our brothers in Christ to form a society that is more humane? And women have more and more roles in which we're able to exercise this creativity. A third characteristic he points out is openness to God's word. And this has to do with that being a woman of the gospel that's going to aid humanity. And this openness to God's word is so that our minds and our hearts are renewed in a truth that transcends us. And he sees this openness to God's word as one that enables us to receive uh, the truth and to collaborate with creativity in building up a more humane society. He says, the motherhood of every woman expresses a profound listening to the word of God, a readiness to safeguard that word, which is the word of eternal life. A fourth characteristic he, he develops is that of compassion. Now, I don't know how many of you in the, in the shrine of the Immaculate Conception were able to visit the chapel of the Sorrowful Mother. There also happened to be prayer cards with that image of the Sorrowful Mother sitting there. I actually discerned my vocation in that basilica, and that was my, that's my favorite chapel. And I used to go in there and pray often. Um, and even though Michelangelo is, of course, one of the world's greatest sculptors and artists in all of history, right, that Pieta is my favorite. And there's a specific reason, and it has to do with John Paul's understanding of compassion um, in woman's heart is even though I love Michelangelo's, I'm not saying this is a masterpiece, but that one, if you look at it closely, Mary is holding her son, and in her face there is a strength, there is a depth. I love the face of Mary, but the thing that makes it different than almost every Pieta I've looked at is that while she's holding her dead son in her arms, she's not looking down, she's looking up. And I think that this, 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 this visually for me captures what the compassion John Paul II sees in the heart of women. That women are exceptionally strong at standing with people in their suffering. We know that suffering is the way new life comes into this world. Many women experience that directly in their own bodies. That they literally, and he writes about this, that the mother literally gives of her own strength and her own energy so that new life can come into this world. Okay. and that she has an exceptional share in the suffering of the birthing uh, of every human being. But this capacity to stand with another in suffering is seen also in the Blessed Mother, the Holy Woman at the foot of the cross. Women have an exceptional capacity. Look at all of human history. Look at the battlefields. Women have an exceptional capacity to stand with those who are suffering. But it's not just suffering in itself that redeems the world. It's suffering that's embraced with love. If you can continue to love in the midst of pain, if you can continue to hope in the midst of sorrow, that is, that is compassion coming to its fruition. And that is this exceptional capacity that is strong in woman, this willingness to embrace suffering to bring new life into this world, both in the physical process of giving birth and in the birthing of a new culture of life and of love. John Paul II says that when we look at these beautiful characteristics I've just outlined, we see them in their highest expression in Mary. She is the embodiment of the feminine genius, and he calls all women to look to her as a source of constant inspiration. 
He writes in his letter to women, she who was in all her being a gift for her son has also become a gift for the sons and daughters of the whole human race, awakening profound trust in those who seek her guidance along the difficult paths of life, on the way to their definitive and transcendent destiny. John Paul recognizes the path we're on is difficult. If you, if you went through the exhibit here on his life, his life was difficult. He lost his entire natural family by the age of 20. He had to study for the priesthood in secret. He saw the Nazi regime, he saw his professors taken away to the concentration camp. He saw the communist regime. He didn't have an, a lack of suffering in his life, but he knew where to turn. You know, his papal motto, totus tuus, totally yours. And if you think about entrustment to Our Lady, sometimes people get a little, well, is this somehow an obstacle to a total radical dedication to Christ? Absolutely not. If you've ever met any mother and you start asking, who has a son, and you start asking them about their sons, they are all about wanting you to think well of their son, wanting you to get to know their son, wanting you to lead them. And I said, she's like the perfect mom, okay? So she wants everyone to know her son. She wants everyone to love her son. She does not impede our relationship with the Lord. She serves our relationship with the Lord because she wants us to be with him. If we want to see a model of all of the characteristics of mothering souls, we look to her. In the document, Redemptoris Mater, on the mother of the Redeemer, in number 46 of that document, John Paul II says that femininity will always have a unique relationship with the mother of the Redeemer. He says, the figure of Mary of Nazareth sheds light on womanhood as such by the very fact that God, in the sublime event of the incarnation of his son, entrusted himself to the ministry, the free and active ministry of a woman. That line is a little bit mind-blowing. <laughs> God entrusted himself to the free and active ministry of a woman. If we doubt whether we can safely entrust ourselves to the maternal care of Mary, God entrusted himself. God awaited her free and full response. John Paul continues, it can thus be said that women, by looking to Mary, find in her the secret of living their femininity with dignity and of achieving their true advancement. Of course we want to advance. Of course we want to make progress. But don't let the world tell you what that looks like. Let the Lord tell you what that looks like. John Paul says in his letter to women that the church's 2,000-year history for all its historical conditioning, which was sometimes not in favor of women, has truly experienced the genius of woman. And he goes through like a litany of the saints, of the beautiful women who've touched the human community. And he says, the life of the church in the third millennium, here we are, will certainly not be lacking in new and surprising manifestations of the feminine genius. Okay, here's our marching orders new and surprising manifestations of the feminine genius. So my last words to you tonight are, let God surprise you. Let him surprise you. So many of the women who spoke to us 
we're surprised by God. I loved it when they said, our path is not a linear one, it's a very circular one. And hearing the stories of the women who shared with us, God surprised them and they let themselves be surprised. Let God surprise you with the beauty of a call and a plan that are uniquely yours. All vocations are really about life-giving love. Every vocation is about life-giving love. So do not be afraid. God is with you, he is for you, he delights in you. And this is the source of our real strength, the strength that we need in order to be attentive, creative, open to the word, compassionate. 2,000 years ago, one young woman in one very obscure small town heard God's word and her yes changed the whole world. So entrust yourself to her with great confidence. Echo her, let it be done unto me according to your word, and go surprise the church and the whole world. Thank you. Sister, um, that was a beautiful reflection. I'd like to, at this moment, um, call forward the board of the Given Institute. Those board members that are here, if you could come forward. We just have a couple of thank yous that I'd like to do tonight. We have a lot of thank yous that we're going to go over tomorrow morning. Um, but there are a few people that are present tonight, and I thought Given the nature of the talk on the feminine genius, I wanted to recognize them at this time. One thing that I love about the church is that we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. As Sister said, you know, we have this communion of saints surrounding us. One person plants the seed and another waters and another reaps the fruit. Tonight, I would like to recognize the co-chairs of the first given forum, Sister Mary Gabriel and Sister Bethany Madonna. It was Sister Mary Gabriel and Sister Bethany Madonna's inspiration. It was in their hearts that the vision of Given was first conceived and bore fruit. Because of that inspiration and the success of the 2016 Given Forum, we are here today. So we thank you for your courage, for your inspiration, and for your spiritual maternity. Thank you.
Now, there is one woman that's here among us to whom we all owe a tremendous debt of gratitude. Anne-Marie Warner, Givens Director of Operations. Anne-Marie, you need to come Anne-Marie has overseen all, and I mean all, of the details of this forum with vision, hard work, and amazing organizational skills. Anne-Marie has overseen every aspect of this gathering with professionalism and with a great feminine heart. I can confidently say without Anne-Marie, Given 2019 would have never happened. <laughs> On behalf of the board and all of those present here tonight, we thank you from the depths of our hearts and are honestly amazed at what you have done. This entire forum has been truly extraordinary in its breadth, depth, and attention to detail. Thank you, Anne-Marie. And some of the board members will be with us tomorrow, but I just want to thank each of them for all of their hard work and perseverance throughout this last year. So thank you all. Mary Madeline, you are a woman imbued with the gospel. <laughs> thank you for your yes, and thank you for your talk. Um, just looking ahead for this evening, we're going to uh, go into the chapel and um, have a beautiful holy hour. Sister Regina Marie is going to give us a reflection and a meditation, and we'll uh, be led into worship and thanksgiving, really a lot of great gratitude, and being able to just entrust ourselves uh, over to Jesus and give him everything. Let everything be given in, in this night. And then looking to tomorrow, um, just a few practicals. It would be good to be packed uh, before Mass uh, if you want to uh, start thinking just organizationally um, about uh, how tomorrow will go. We're going to have morning prayer optionally and adoration optionally in the morning and breakfast with the closing final keynote with Helen Alvarez, which you do not want to miss. Um, and then the action plan session in the closing mass. So if you could have your things uh, packed and ready to go before mass, and only those whom I mentioned earlier need to have their things out of the room, but everyone else can just be ready. And then if you want to drop off your keys by noon at the Prisbola registration desk, that would be wonderful. 
And that's all I have for now. So if you want to take about 10 minutes to 15, we all need to be <laughs> honest. Um, we'll we'll uh, find ourselves uh, in the chapel. So bless you. Thank you.